Amen. Brothers, good to see you tonight, even though I'm not here with you. I'm in Columbia, kind of crazy. I'm preaching to a bunch of empty white seats. But I can see Ben over there. I can see Bob in the back. I think Brett, you sit over there. Art, you're right there as usual. Good to see you guys. Um, prayerfully, things are going great in Columbia, which I'm sure there are. And then next week when I get back, uh, I'll talk to you guys about Columbia and, and what happened there. But tonight, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. That's going to be the book for the next nine months. Theme this year, the coming of the Lord, excited about what God is doing. And of course, Thessalonians, a great book, perfect for, I believe, the churches today. For us, um, we see the world, <laughs> any moment the world could explode. And it is out of control. We see on the news, now I don't watch on the news, but I think you guys, some of you are watching on the news. I hear news stories, of course. And uh, man, we're seeing things that are just unbelievable. How in the world did they get like this? Um, my goodness, we see this ship, it's listing, it's about ready to sink. Um, who can fix the problems? Who has the answers? Who's going to work it all out? Who can solve it? Of course, as Christians, we know that God can. Amen. But the problem is, of course, the world doesn't want God. So who is the world looking to? Well, the world will begin to look to and will look to the Antichrist, the man of sin, the man of peace who will solve all the world's problems. And uh, he will be worshipped. And people will think he's the best thing since sliced bread. It's going to be amazing. And that's Satan's plan for the world. He wants to be worshipped, of course. But what's God's plan for the world in the end? Assuming, of course, that we might be there. But people have been saying this for thousands of years. But it sure looks like it, doesn't it? So what's God's plan for the end as we wait? What is needed for the world? Three things we see represented in this book. The gospel, a revival, and the hope of his coming. The gospel, of course, it's used six times in this book that Jesus died for our sins because of God's love for us. He sent him. He died. He rose again, demonstrating victory over sin and death. And of course, that whoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. Now, that's the true gospel, not the gospel of politics, not the gospel of nationalism, not the gospel of socialism, not the gospel of prosperity, which is being preached in the churches today in the United States and around the world. Not that. We need the true gospel, the true gospel that can bring salvation, that can only bring salvation. And the church, of course, we know needs to get back to this as a whole. So the gospel, of course, a revival. This church went through an incredible revival. And it's a turning from the world's sin and idolatry and the gods of this world of money and power and possessions, pleasure. Oh, my gosh. All the gods, all the little gods. Turning from those idols to Christ, to the true and living God. And, of course, the hope of his coming. And that's the promise that, of course, this is not all there is. We are not of this world. Our citizenship is, citizenship is where? Heaven, brothers. I know I heard you say that. I heard you say it. <laughs> and it is God's plan to return and right all the wrongs and uh, all the evil that will be judged. And that's what is needed in the church. It's needed in California. It's needed in America. It's needed in the world. The world needs it. And of course, that's what we have in this book. It's a book about revival coming to a city. Because the gospel was preached, Paul brought it by the power of God's Holy Spirit that included the, the promise of his return. It's a book about a church that caught on fire. 
In three weeks, Paul was there teaching on the Sabbaths. Amazing. They turned from the idols that were there, the very licentious lifestyle, the sexual immorality to the living and true God. And they became the talk of the nations all around. And it's a book of God's wonderful plan to save a city, to change the people. They might be a witness and bring the gospel and the message to the entire world. And it all started right there in Thessalonica. And so the history we have here is recorded in Acts 16 and 17. And this is the historical context, the minutes of how the church began. We know the book of Acts and it's very specific. The church we know came into existence due to Paul's obedience and the call that God came and gave him. And of course, the leading to God's spirit. The call to was to go and preach. He was the first missionary to Europe. And this call and obedience came as a vision as well. Uh, and it sent the gospel westward, eastward and spread. And it's real history. There was a real vision, a real calling, a real city, a real story. So turn with me to the book of Acts, starting in Acts chapter 16. So let me hear those pages turning, shuffling. I'm hearing it. I'm hearing it. All right. Acts chapter 16. We'll take up the story in verse 6 through 10. And we'll also look at Acts 17, 1 through 9. But here, of course, this is an amazing story where in chapter 16, Timothy now joins Paul and Silas. And that's where he picked up his, his protege, Timothy. And it starts here in verse 6 as we're there. Now, when they had gone through Figria and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia, going eastward. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia, westward, stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And of course, Macedonia is modern day Greece. So Paul hears that. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's where it began. Paul in tune with the spirit of God. God speaking clearly. No, don't go this way. You're going this way. And so as the story goes, Paul heads to heads there. He stops in Philippi and that's where Lydia gets saved. And then, of course, him and Paul, I mean, him and Silas, they're imprisoned in Philippi. We know the Philippian jailer gets saved, that credible story. And then, of course, in, in Philippi is where they're kind of chased out and ran out of that city. And this is where they're heading now in chapter 17 to Thessalonica. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Amplonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths, three Sabbaths, you guys, <laughs> amazing, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer, rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, preaching the gospel. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But, of course, the Jews were not persuaded. Verse five, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Imagine if that was you. Jason just being a blessing, opens up his house and they come after him in the house. And sought to bring them out of the people. But when they did not find them, they, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, 
These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Make note of that verse. Okay, guys. Verse 7, though Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And all they, and then they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So there's a bit of the context, the history, how Paul came into Thessalonica, what took place, why he ended up leaving. So back to our passage of scripture here in Thessalonica, in First Thessalonians, we see that Paul, of course, directed by the Spirit into Greece, Macedonia, started in Philippi, finally ends up where he's supposed to be. Stays three weeks, as far as we know, is chased out and heads to Berea, then on to Athens, and then to Corinth, where they believe that Paul wrote this letter from. Now, Acts 17, 6, a verse, guys, that really should resonate in our hearts. These who have turned the world upside down. I would to God that would be the witness of the church today. That the church would be turning the world upside down. Sad to say, as we know, the influence of the world is coming in and the world is turning the church upside down. Sad state of the church. Sad to see, as we know. So the location and the people, of course, um, this city still exists today. And this city was the largest and most influential city of its time. It was a thriving seaport with about oh, a quarter of a million people, Greeks, Romans, sailors, travelers, businessmen, and enough Jews to support a synagogue. And the greatest asset this city had was its location, right next to the Ignatian Way, which was the major east-west highway of the Roman Empire. Think about that. The city is right there where the whole world basically was traveling. It's significant to the spread of the gospel. Barclay writes, It is impossible to overstress the importance of the arrival of Christianity to Thessalonica. If Christianity was settled there, it was bound to spread east along the Ignatian Way, until all Asia was conquered and west until it stormed even the city of Rome. The coming of Christianity to Thessalonica was crucial in making Christianity into a world religion. And remember, the Holy Spirit was the one who forbid them to go east, wanted them to go west to land in Thessalonica. So that was the location and the people. The reason for the letter, of course, why did Paul write it? What was the occasion? What was the purpose? Well, it was a letter of encouragement, a letter of comfort and assurance, and it was a letter in response. The encouragement, of course, in most of Paul's letters, he's encouraging the believers. Comfort and assurance that Paul cared for them because, of course, in most of the churches, they were being persecuted. But also it was a letter sent in response to Timothy's report coming back to Paul. Paul had sent Timothy back to see how things were going at the church. In chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, turn with me, it's right here. Let's read the story here, it tells it all. So chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of the Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before 
when we are with you, that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And, you know, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. So this report comes back from Timothy and, and overall this report was encouraging, but there were some issues, some issues that concerned Paul. So he, he sends back responding to some of the issues. And one of the things was he was concerned about the same persecution that drove Paul out of the city. That was still happening. And Paul wanted to encourage them that they would stand firm no matter what. There was also lies and slander about Paul, as usual in the guys. They were saying, oh, see, they took off so fast. They're just in this for the money. They're just in this for the reputation. Thirdly, there was talk that since they had not returned, they didn't really care. Oh, they said all this and they were just being hypocritical. Fourthly, there was concern that the new converts would backslide back into the sexual immorality that they had escaped from. And Paul also wanted to correct the wrong understanding about the Lord's coming, the end times. But also Paul wanted to give them further instructions in Christian living while they awaited the Lord's return. And then here we have some of the main themes of the book. Um, 89 verses is all this book has. A lot of stuff in this little book, though. Amazing, amazing. Great deal to learn, uh, which he wanted in chapter 5, verse 27. He wanted it read to all the holy brethren. He wanted this letter read to everybody. So some of the themes, the main themes, number one was revival. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Revival that took place for which Paul was so thankful. Secondly, it was the gospel mentioned six times in this book and the gospel that brought salvation and changes. And again, guys, the true gospel, the living gospel, not the gospel that is being preached today. That is junk, that is won't do anything for a man's salvation. But also in chapter two, verse one through 12, there was a defense going on here. Paul reminds them of how he and the rest of the, the apostles there acted how they did not take advantage of anybody, but loved them like a mother, like a father, and how they represented the Lord in their own behavior. And they were witnesses to this. Fourthly, there was a commendation. Chapter 2, verse 13 through 16, Paul tells them how proud he was at the, the reception of the word of God, how they received it, how they believed it, how they accepted it, how it had changed their lives. In chapter 2, verse 17, there was an explanation. Hey, why didn't you come back? What happened? It's amazing. You read the story. Chapter two, verse 17 says, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in present, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. And we see the spiritual warfare that often occurs in the work of the ministry. God has got a plan. God is moving. The enemy comes in. He thwarts that. He changes things. God, ultimately, all things work for good. But that's Paul's excuse. That's what happened. That was the explanation. Sixthly, we have the concern and the encouragement in chapter three, verses one through 13. Paul's so concerned he had to send Tim. Tim, go find out. Go let us know. Go get a port. Bring it back. And Tim comes back with his report, of course, that it prompted this letter. And of course, we, we find out that Paul uh, was encouraged by them all. And then, of course, we have the challenge starting in chapter four, 
verse 1 through 12. Here, Paul addresses some of the issues now. Now, here's some of the instruction. Here's some of the correction, the exhortations, the challenges that were there, our challenges. And, and really, basically, he was telling them that they must continue to grow, to abound in these things. And that's a challenge for all of us, guys. If you're not growing, chances are you're becoming stagnant. If you're not going forward in your walk, you, just, you can't just stay where you're at. You're either going forward or you're going backwards, guys. How are you today? What's going on with you in 2021 with all that's happened in this world? Are you caught up in all the things of the world? Are you more focused on the media, on the news, social media, all the things that happen, all this, all this, instead of the word of God, instead of Christ, instead of your relationship with him? Spending more time watching news than reading God's word. Trouble, guys. But the challenge is, of course, and there, there he was challenging them to continue to grow. And how, how were they to do this? Well, number one, he says they were to abstain from sexual immorality. Nothing new under the sun, guys. Think about it. Kumo would probably still be governor if he would, was to abstain from this sexual immorality. How about exercising self-control? Turning from the things that you know will bring you down, the things were not uh, permitted by God or what God would want for your life. How about number three, understanding the consequences of sin. Do you realize that if David had thought before he had acted, if he had walked through this process of, hey, if I call Bathsheba up here, what is going to happen? And guys, for us in this situation, the enemy is out there. He's tempting all of us. You begin to entertain those thoughts and head down that path. It's a path of destruction. Think about the consequences. Think about what would happen. David had no idea and never imagined that his sin would cost the life of his son Absalom and so many others. The challenge, guys. Fourthly, to abound in love. Really, when you think about it, the two commands, love God, love others. Paul challenging them to do that, but also to live a godly life, to be right before God. And sixthly, to be an example to the world right before men. These, these six things, guys, you could take that list right there. Abound in those and your Christian rock, your Christian walk will be right on. It'll rock. <laughs> so we're growing in these things. We're abounding in these areas. That was the challenge. And then, of course, we have the coming of the Lord in chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11. But, of course, the coming of the Lord is referred to in every chapter of this book. Chapter 1, verse 10. Love it. What does he say? And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown or rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. Thirdly, in chapter 3, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the saints. Fourthly, in chapter 4, verse 15, for this we save you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. In chapter 5, verse 23, lastly, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your 
whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless. Say it with me at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the coming of the Lord, which is also represented by the rapture spoken of in chapter four, verse 13 through 18. And also the day of the Lord spoken of in chapter five, verse 11, verse one through 11. And of course, Paul is preparing them for the coming of the Lord. But Paul was by no means saying that the Lord was coming tomorrow. As a matter of fact, in writing this letter, he was correcting some of the false teaching that was going around that it was telling people, and that's picked up in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians, that we will cover at the end of the study in um, May of next year or April of next year, Lord willing, if we're all here. But they had thought that the Lord had already come. And what was happening, what had happened to those who had fallen asleep? Would, were they caught up in, you know, all this stuff, all this talk? Paul assures them. He corrects them. And of course, the rapture happens. And then as soon as the rapture happens, that's when the day of the Lord begins. The beginning of the, the start of the tribulation, the seven year tribulation. So he talked about the coming of the Lord, but also one of the themes. Lastly, the instructions while we wait. Paul lists some 15 different exhortations in this list. Great, great for us. And we'll go through each one of those. So, guys, there you have it. Quick overview, of course. And I see this book as a book of preparation, a book of motivation. It's a book of a clarion call. Clearly, the preparation for us. Hey, get ready. Are you ready? And, of course, in that process of getting ready to be ready and stay in that place that when the Lord blows the trumpet, when the voice of the archangel, we are there. No questions, no doubt. And of course, for the world, us to get out there, guys, and to preach the gospel, to be those who are representing Christ, to be those who are in our families, being an example, pointing the way to Christ, talking about the world's situations, not like a lunatic, not quitting your job, selling everything, blowing all your money because the Lord's come back tomorrow. No, you're, you're very logically, consciously, seriously, without acting like a lunatic, telling people that eh, this could be it. And it doesn't matter if it's if he's coming today or tomorrow. What matters is, are you ready? Are the people that you know ready? We could die today. You could die tomorrow. Lord could come back in 100 years or 1000 years. We're still going to see him one way or the other. Get the people ready. And I see this book, of course, it's a call for all men to rise up, you guys, to grow up, to stand up, to not shut up, to not be quiet about the gospel, to continue to preach. It's perfect timing because we have the truth, the only truth. And we know, guys, this is the answer for the world today. And Paul ends the letter perfectly. Chapter five, verse 23, 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So there, my brothers, a quick introduction to this book. It's going to be a great year. I pray that you continue to stay with us the whole time, enjoying all this and what God's going to teach us. And, and our fellowship, our gathering together, our group time. And so, guys, I will see you next week. We're going to start the book out, of course, in chapter one, verse one through five. The marks of a healthy Christian in church. So see you there. God bless you.
Have a great night.